Right, if you turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 16 that we read earlier, I just want to look at um, two verses which uh, come rather like a bolt out of the blue. Here is uh, Paul uh, gradually winding down his great letter and bringing many, many greetings to and from the people he's writing to. Uh, when in the midst of this, his customary list of uh, uh, personal references at the end, we're suddenly ambushed by a string of short, sharp commands. I think of it rather like a, 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 a platoon of uh, troops uh, slowly advancing over open ground and suddenly being met with a, a large burst of machine gun, a hail of machine gun uh, bullets coming towards them. That's how it seems to me as we read it. And uh, uh, a military metaphor is appropriate because uh, the four imperatives of verse 13 are all straight from the parade ground. But I want us to look at verse 13 and verse 14 of 1 Corinthians 16. So here it is, verse 13. Here it is, just this salvo of commands. Uh, which are unexpected, as I say, in the midst of these greetings that he's giving. Here it is, verse 13. <clears throat> Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. And then it's all concluded with another slightly differently slanted command. Verse 14. Let all that you do be done in love. And... Uh, the truth probably is that having mentioned some of the people who have been very faithful servants of him, like Timothy and Apollos and the family of Stephanus and various other, and he's thinking of them, how faithful they've been. And then he's, he's sort of thinking again about all the shortcomings and the failings of the congregation generally in uh, uh, Corinth. Uh, they all come flooding back into his mind, and he's seeing this contrast. And it's as though um, all of the advice that he's uh, spelt out in the previous 15 chapters are now gathered up and, as it were, encapsulated in these five sudden commands that come out, uh, summarizing virtually everything he's been saying and uh, a heartfelt exhortation, unexpected as it is in its context, but there it is. And I just thought it would be a good idea, um, briefly, just to look at these five commands. Um, nothing terribly deep here this evening. You're all tired. If you've had a lunch like I've had, uh, you'll be... Uh, well, I'm not quite sure what I'm saying. But anyway, it was a great lunch. And uh, uh, if we just look at these together before we come to the Lord's table, it will help us, I think, to um, just be reminded of how we should live as Christians. So the first <clears throat> command is in verse 13. Be watchful or uh, be on your guard. Keep watch. Keep constantly on the alert. As I say, the, the, the four commands there in uh, verse 13 are, are very much um, military commands. They all have that flavor about them. This is the church militant. One day we'll be the church triumphant in glory and we'll sing songs of glory. The victor's song we just sang about and that will be in our hearts and on our lips for all eternity. But in the meanwhile, we're here on earth and as we were looking at briefly this morning, we were seeing that we are in a spiritual warfare. 
and uh, we have to be like this. So it's almost a summary of what we said this morning as well, but from a slightly different angle. But be on your guard, that's the first command. <clears throat> Often in the New Testament, this command, be alert, is with reference to the second coming of the Lord. Be alert, says Jesus. You, you, you don't know when the Lord is going to come, what hour he's going to come, he says in Matthew 24. And so it refers to the future. We don't know when the Lord's going to come. We should live as those who are longing and looking for the return of the Lord. It's the great incentive for the Christian life is that we look to the coming, the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't deprive yourself of that incentive. It's our great hope. You have hopes in your life. You hope for your summer holiday or you hope your family's going to visit you soon. You hope for all sorts of things. They keep you going. Well, the greatest hope of all in the Christian life is the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is a certain hope. And that should keep us going. That's why we need to think of the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. All that that means, our wedding day. He comes as the judge of those who do not trust him. He comes as the bridegroom of his bride, the church. So no judgment for us. Our sins were judged on the cross. Our judgment is in the past. We look forward to the wedding song of the Lamb, the wedding feast of the Lamb, the wedding supper of the Lamb. So no fears about the coming of the Lord for those who trust in Christ. But we need to be looking forward to his coming. We need to be alert for his coming, be watchful for his coming. And then sometimes this command applies to dangers from without. The Apostle Peter very famously says in his first letter, he says, be alert. Oh, you don't know about the devil. The devil is like a prowling lion waiting to devour you. Be alert against all the temptations that come in our life. Temptations come in many different flavors and colors. Temptations come in different levels of strength to different people. You are tempted in ways that I am never tempted. How marvelous I must be. But the fact of the matter is, I am tempted in all sorts of ways that you would never dream of being tempted. We are all different. And the devil knows a lot about us, but praise God, Jesus no more. So we've nevertheless got to be alert. Are you alert? Do you sometimes sin against the Lord and you, 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 you're taken unawares and, and you, you did it and you're so sorry and repentant and you wonder why you did it? <clears throat> well, yes, well, next time, hopefully, you'll be more alert and you won't succumb to that particular temptation. We need to be alert. But here, when he says, be on your guard, or uh, what it says in, 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 the, in our version there in verse 13, be watchful. He's probably, most likely, warning them about the careless manner in which they live, in which they conducted themselves. The problem was with these Corinthian believers that they were doing all sorts of things they shouldn't have been doing, and they weren't thinking it through. Nobody's telling them. And uh, they were being allowed to do things. And their leaders were sometimes the worst of the bunch. And he says, be careful about all these things. The way in which some thought they could live as they liked without causing spiritual harm to themselves. And Paul concentrates on that. I only just turn a page back in my Bible and read in chapter 15 and uh, verse uh, 33, where he says, Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunkenness. Drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. He's saying, look, you're, you're, you're doing bad things together. You're not mixing with the right crowd. You're spending more time with pagans than you're spending with Christians. How do you expect that's going to work out? And uh, he's 
He's asking them to be watchful about their relationships and the way they conduct themselves in their daily lives. How watchful are we in our personal lives? As that command comes so many times in the scripture. Be watchful, be alert. Mostly, I think, on the lips of the Lord Jesus Christ. So what does it mean to you to be watchful and to be alert spiritually? Think about that. And uh, maybe be more alert in coming days. That's the first command. The second command is um, there in verse <clears throat> 13. Stand firm in the faith. That could technically be translated stand firm in your faith. But uh, virtually all commentators agree that it's talking about the faith. Uh, objectively, the faith, what you believe. Stand firm in your beliefs. Stand firm in true and pure doctrine. That's what he's saying here. The objective body of truth that has once and for all been delivered to the saints, as Jude says. This body of essential doctrine that's summarized in your doctrinal basis in Clitic Church, as it is in every faithful church. It is this truth that you must regard and stand firm. And that's what he's saying here. And, and why is it so important to stand on this, uh, this truth, this objective truth, this treasure of the gospel? Because inconsistent living often stems from inconsistent doctrine. And often Christians don't understand how important the connection is. Christians often go off the straight and narrow, as we might say, because their, their doctrine isn't right. If you come to a, a really evangelical church like this one, that's why it, there's an emphasis on doctrine. There's an emphasis on the objective truths of the faith. Because we know from experience of centuries passed down to us, that those who are firm in their understanding of the faith are more likely to live lives that are consistent to the gospel. And to fondly imagine that uh, your understanding is secure when it isn't is always a, a dangerous thing. Um, uh, be careful, says Paul in this letter. If you think you stand, beware unless you fall. He says that in this very letter. And he's got that in his mind here. He says, you think you're secure in your understanding. Well, be sure. Make sure you understand from the Bible what the Bible teaches and rest firm on that foundation. Absolutely vital. He's been talking about it consistently. I mean, just the previous chapter, the great chapter on the resurrection. How does it start? Chapter 15, verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand. And by which you are saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you. And then he says the importance of the central facts of the crucifixion and the resurrection and everything that flows from them. Paul is emphasizing that. He's concerned about their behavior. But in order to influence their behavior and make their lives consistent with the gospel, he says you have got to understand the truth of the doctrine that we have. That's why he ends that chapter 1 Corinthians 15 by saying, therefore my beloved brothers be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. The work of the Lord stems from the fact that you are standing fast in the truth, immovable from the truth. Not shaky on your daughter, well, I'm not sure I really believe in this, that and the other. 
Not sure I really believe in the Trinity. Not sure I really believe that Jesus rose from the dead even. I'm doubting that. If you doubt those things, you will be shaky in your Christian life. These things are certainties which are absolutely vital for us to believe and hold on to. And um, if our Christian lifestyle is chaotic, chaotic, it's often because we are not faithful to these doctrines. Right, let me come on to the third command here, which is uh, an interesting one, I think, especially for today. <clears throat> and um, here it is in verse 13 of 1 Corinthians 16, and it says, act like men. There's a, a popular phrase. Imagine all sorts of people saying, what? And, Whoa, hey. I wonder if you hear a, hear a sermon on, on that text. How many preachers would dare to preach on this? Act like men. One of the reasons I'm uh, preaching on from the ESV tonight is this is unafraid to actually translate it in a very accurate way because in the NIV, originally it said, be men of courage, which is pretty close. But then in the latest NIV, it says, be courageous. And it sort of loses the whole idea of the men thing entirely, which is a bit uh, naughty, I think. Uh, I love the NIV, but there you go. And uh, the thing is, what it actually says is, act like men. Remember what the old authorized version says at this point? Anybody remember? Exactly. Well done. It says, quit ye like men. And um, either way, it's, um, that's what it, what it means. If you can make a verb out of the word man, that's what it is. Um, be manly, perhaps, would be the simplest way of putting it. But that's what it says uh, in the original. That's the original Greek. So... Now, how do you handle that today? Remember, he's writing to the leaders in the congregation. He's expecting uh, the husbands to instruct their wives and so on and so forth. We'll talk about all that culturally. I understand all that. But he says this because he's speaking primarily here to the men in the congregation. No question about that. Be manly. Now, as we live in such a very gender-sensitive age, to put it mildly, seemingly more sensitive and problematical as every week passes, uh, we need to think about what this means. So we might certainly be tempted to downplay certain aspects of this command. Um, now, this verb appears only on this one occasion in the New Testament. But in the Greek version of the Old Testament, and that was the version that Christ used with his apostles in the time of Christ, it was the, they didn't in general use, use the Hebrew. Of course, they did when they were in the synagogue, but otherwise, very often the quotations are from what we call the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, this word crops up again and again. And so it's interesting to look at those occurrences and see how they're translated and what they mean in uh, context. We haven't time to go into great detail, but generally speaking, um, when that word is used, it is translated uh, in the tense sense of, of being of, of strength and of courage and of leadership. If you were to read in Deuteronomy 31, we won't turn to it, but Moses is encouraging Joshua to be a man of courage. Uh, if, you, if you looked in Joshua chapter 1, again and again in Joshua chapter 1, be strong and courageous. That command comes uh, straight from uh, uh, 
Moses to Joshua, be strong and courageous. You're going to lead the people of Israel into the promised land. And the word that's used in the, the Greek Old Testament is this same word, be strong, be what a man ought to be in terms of leadership and of strength and of courage. Uh, it appears in, in, in the Psalms uh, as well. And the Bible values true manliness in a way that is generally mocked today. There's one passage I will turn to because I think it's an important one. If you turn in your Bibles just for a moment to 1 Kings chapter 2, or if you just rather listen, that's fine. But in 1 Kings chapter 2 and verses 2 and 3, um, what you have here is um, uh, David charging Solomon uh, uh, as he's going to take over the kingship. And uh, he says there in um, 1 Kings 2 and verse 2, he says, I am about to go the way of all the earth. Be strong and show yourself a man. And I just say for the NIV, it actually says that as well in the NIV. So that's good, isn't it? Show yourself a man and keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in his ways and keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules and his testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn and so on and so forth. But there it is, the command of King David to his son, who is going to take over the throne of Israel, be strong and show yourself a man. And as I say, it just happens to talk about showing yourself a man in the same way, but those words appear elsewhere, talk about leadership and courage and strength generally. And I would just say this, that such men are desperately needed in the church today. And often the way in which the church drifts and the way in which the churches of Christ don't know exactly where they're going or what they're doing is due to a lack of strong, manly leadership. We believe in this church that leadership is male because that's what the teaching of the Word of God is regarding the church, just as in the family. There's no doubt about this. And there are reasons for this, because male and female are different. They are both of equal value, spiritually equal, but functionally different. And the Bible says these are male characteristics. Now, your argument is with the Bible, if you say, oh, that's nonsense. Men and women can do all of these things equally. No, if they can do them all equally, why don't they make the same? Why have two genders or sexes if everybody's exactly the same and can do the same sort of thing? Why not? We could all be androgynous. Be no problem at all, would it? But no, God has created things in this way because he wants to, be, he wants to express this functional difference in order to uh, illustrate the way in which he wants his church to grow and to be led. And so that sense of manliness, quit ye like men, act the man, and is, is, a, is a vital thing. Um, who was it? it was I forget the, when those martyrs at the time of the uh, uh, Reformation were being burnt at the stake? Was it Latimer who said to Ridley? Um, he said, "Play the man, Master Ridley. Play the man." And by God's grace, this day we shall light such a candle that will never be put out, or something like that. Don't quote me; I'm not quoting it accurately, but something very similar to that. Play the man, Master Ridley. Well, that was something to say in the midst of the flames of martyrdom. But anyway, 
we need to understand these things. The Bible speaks about these things. And that's why we have to maintain the truth of two sexes or genders. The words mean the same. And we must maintain these things, especially in the church. We don't start there. If we lose that in the church, what hope are we of maintaining those truths outside the church? So let's be unashamed to do that, even though it may be regarded as hate speech in days to come. We all might end up in prison together. Who knows? But there it is. Uh, we shall maintain the truth on those things because they're so important. But then there is also another aspect of this command, um, which does actually apply to Christian women as, as, as well. Because the problem with so many of uh, the Corinthians, and particularly the men in the church, was that they were acting childishly. And we could emphasize this as well, because, and, and it does be, it's referred to several times in this letter, in, in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 3, for example. He says, but I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants, he says, in Christ. And Paul has always got this in mind. He says, I cannot believe that you're acting in such a childish manner. I'm, I'm talking to children here. It's as though I've got the first class in the Sunday school instead of having uh, the, uh, the mature church that you ought to be by now. It's many of your problems and difficulties are because you're being so immature in the way that you uh, behave uh, in, in chapter 14 of this uh, uh, letter and, and verse uh, 20. We read, brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, yes. Be naive and simple in evil, great. But in your thinking, be mature. So there again is another verse in the same letter where he's speaking out against immaturity in the Christian life. And Paul's answer is found in chapter 13 and verse 11. He says this. He says, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. So you see, this is quite a theme as he goes through this letter. As he sees the immaturity of the believers there, which is getting them into all this trouble and causing so much grief to each other and to him and to the Lord. He says, you really need to grow up and be men, not children. Be spiritually mature. I suppose the greatest chapter on this is when he writes to the Ephesians. And you think of Ephesians 4 and that great passage. He says um, in chapter 4 and verse 11 of Ephesians, he gave the, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may be no longer children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine by human cunning and its craftiness and deceitful schemes. You see, this is a consistent theme in Paul's mind. I want mature believers. And, and if you're just like children, you'll be like children squabbling in the playground. He says, that's not what you need to be. You ought to be grown up. And he's putting it in Ephesians 4, of course, very much in the church context. He says, how do you become mature as a church? leaving no one behind 
you grow up into Christ, you become mature together as you lead on one another, as you bless one another in your relations with one another. That's what being part of the church is. If you were just out on your own, not part of a church, you would remain childish in your belief probably forever. But as part of the church, you're built up and you become mature. That's uh, so important. And uh, courage and maturity are characteristics that we all need in increasing measure in today's world. The fourth command at the end of verse 13 is just simply be strong. And probably that command is a summary of all that's gone before. Um, a good soldier of Jesus Christ in the midst of these military metaphors must have a strong spiritual constitution. A soldier goes into training. They've got to be fit. They've got to be able to do things. They've got to run the distance with a great burden on their back and do all sorts of things. That's what a, a soldier's training is all about. And here is this imperative. And it could be translated increase in strength. Not just be strong, but, but keep on getting stronger. And that's what we must do as we exercise that that mustard seed faith that God has given us. When we, we first have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, it's, it's, it's as small as a mustard seed, but it's intended to grow and grow and grow, just as a mustard seed grows, just as a mustard seed became a, a large plant like a tree that the birds of the air could roost in. So that mustard seed faith in our hearts needs to grow. Increase in strength, just like a child gets stronger, physically stronger, but not just physically stronger, mentally stronger, more resilient. Resilience is a quality at a premium these days. And we need to be those who constantly get stronger, increase in strength. And then we come to uh, verse 14, which is the final command. And it's different to the others. It's, uh, you'll notice that it starts uh, with its own sentence and... Uh, this is not the language of the parade ground or uh, of the, the battlefield. And uh, uh, this uh, separate census is marked off even more, obviously, actually, in the original. The first four commands are uh, second person plural, if we're talking grammatically. They're talking to the church, say, you do this. And then this last command is third person singular. Let all you do be done in love. It's put differently, it's phrased differently in order to make you stop and pause and think about what's being said here because he wants all of this, this to encapsulate everything he said, all these previous commands that he's been speaking about, being watchful, standing firm in the faith, acting like men, being strong. He says all of these things can have a, a very rough exterior if you're not careful. So you need to wrap all of these things up in love. Paul says this even more obviously in, in Colossians. If I were to turn to Colossians 3 and verse 14, where he's been listing out lots of different uh, qualities. Here where he's saying, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, etc., etc., etc. And then verse 14, and above all these, put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. This is where he sees the primacy of love, the greatest thing of all, 
You know, there may be faith, there may be hope, but what's the greatest? Love. This is why Paul, in this very book we're looking at, uh, 1 Corinthians, he writes his great chapter on love, doesn't he? 1 Corinthians 13. You all know it. This greatest chapter on love is there in this very letter because it is so important to Paul. Everything needs to be encapsulated in love. Wrap everything in love. That's what the Apostle Paul is saying. Uh, Everything you should do, you should do in love. It's not just what a person does that makes them out to be a true Christian, but how they do it. And this is this blanket command, as I say. And it was the Corinthians' great problem. The reason why they bickered, the reason why they had different ideas and shouted at one another and didn't like Paul telling them what to do is because basically they lacked love for one another, which should be the hallmark of every true believer in the Lord Jesus Christ because it is the love of Christ that should constrain us and show us how to live as true believers. And uh, you can see how he even ends this letter. We're virtually near the end of the letter, but it all flows from our love for the Lord. Look at verse 22, the very ending of this letter. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. And then how does that love from the Lord and to the Lord flow out? Look at verse 24, the very last verse of the letter. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. So as he ends this letter, love is right in the forefront of his thinking. And, you know, he's been warning them about all sorts of things. He's been telling them all sorts of how dreadful they are in many ways, and how much grief they've given him. But he ends with this huge expression of love. And he knows that it is because he loves the Lord that he loves them. The reason he can love them is because he loves the Lord. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be a curse. What he's saying there, is he condemning them? No, he's saying let them be a curse because they obviously are not Christians. That is going to be their fate. That is how it is with them. If you don't have a love for the Lord, you're not a Christian, are you? But if you do have a love for the Lord, that is going to express itself in love for your fellow believers. That's what he's saying here. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all. In Christ Jesus, amen, he says. That's how he ends it. He ends it in love. This book that has the greatest chapter on love and speaks about love throughout in so many different ways. And he's talking to them because, frankly, you know, naturally speaking, we we try to, um, you know, the verse of the Bible says that uh, uh, cover over uh, sins. You know, love covers a multitude of sins. We tend to apply that verse to ourselves and, and forgive our own sins because we love ourselves so much. But we shouldn't cover our own sins up, but we should cover up the sins of others. Love covers a multitude of sins. And the very fact that we talk about others means that if this is a church command, this is how we should live in the church of Jesus Christ. This is how we can practice our love, our love for one another, all for the church, not for ourselves. That's what he's saying there. Let all that you do, all the things I told you about in the previous verse, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. And, he says, let all that you do, all of these things and everything else, let all of these things be done in love. And keep on doing these things 
in this way. And then he's hoping that as a result of this, an expression of his own love for his people, his own love for the Lord and his own love for his people there, they will be transformed to be the people that they ought to be there in Corinth. But those are those big commands there. He, doesn't, he can't just end this chapter in the normal way he does, just going nicely through all the greetings. He has to put this in because he feels that it's still needed. He won't have written completely until he puts these short, sharp commands in as a final reminder of what they need to do. And I hope we can recall these things as well and regard them and ask ourselves, are we obeying these commands in our own lives? The answers may be different for each one of us, but we need to obey these commands and follow them for the good of our souls and for the glory of God.